I think a lot of people assume that one is, they just want to be told they're doing a good job and be reassured and it, it's just, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, of course, people will tell me, you're a great pet owner or your writing is fine or whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that, that doesn't matter. I, I don't care if I tell myself I'm doing a good job or if other people, I don't care about doing a good job. I care about not being physically agonized by what I'm witnessing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of What It's Like to Be You, an Enneagram interview show. My guest today is Alex G, a self-pressed sexual type one with a nine wing. Alex is relatively new to the Enneagram, but she's really come up with some cool language around her own inner experience, in particular, in particular, the way that she describes the somatic experience, one being a body type and how that is somewhat neglected in the literature. If you're new to the Enneagram, then there are a couple of orienting ideas I want to give to you up front here. First is the idea of trifixation, which I spoke about in the introduction to episode two. So if you want to learn about that, go check that out. The second is that the Enneagram is, there are nine types in the Enneagram, nine basic types. And there are a lot of different ways of splitting that into three groups of three that are really useful in terms of understanding what a type structure is and also for identifying type. So there are the harmonic groups, meaning the competence types, the positive outlook types, and the, and the emotional realness types. That's three groups of three right there. There's also the object relations triads, which is there are three attachment types, three frustration types, and three rejection types. There are the centers, which there are three body types, three heart types, and three mental types. And there are, are the Hornivian triads, which are the assertive types, the withdrawn types, and sometimes called the compliant types. I prefer the word conscientious, the conscientious types. That's a lot of language and it's a lot of mouthfuls. And in another episode, maybe I'll go into a more robust definition of what those are but I just wanted to warn you, if you want to understand the language of, the, of this episode, then you might want to just go and quickly brush up on what those things are. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm excited for you to learn from Alex as well. So let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to another interview. I'm here with um, Alex, who is a self-pres sexual type one, one with a nine wing, trifix one, three, five. And Alex, a couple things about you. You are living in Korea right now, and you primarily are a writer, and you um, you are teaching for work, I understand. Um, but also, as you just said, it's not really as much a part of your identity as writing is. So, writer. So, that's, we'll start there. My favorite question up front is, what's it like for you to be introduced? Um, it feels like you're talking about another person. Uh, I, that happens when I hear my name as well. It just doesn't really connect, but sounds like an interesting person. Cool. <laughs> yes, I think I think she is. We'll see. So um, are you willing to share with us your Enneagram origin story? Sure. Um, I was introduced to the Enneagram in college, and I typed as a four and mm -hmm. my interest was pretty shallow um, and I didn't really learn much about it. Um, a few years ago, maybe two years ago, uh, I was a little more interested in it um, and interested in typing people in my life, but 
clearly there is still something that wasn't fitting and I wasn't able to go deeper. Um, I stumbled upon the Enneagram or Universe group through seeing some comments um, in the Enneagram 4 group. And upon going there, I was able to read some more accurate information. And I had a moment where I woke up and I was like, oh, I'm a one. I'm not a four. I don't know how I ever thought that. Uh, that was pretty clear. Um, after I got typed, then I started to pay more attention to instincts as well. Um, at first, that wasn't really the priority for me. But uh, since then, I've just been interested in learning. And I find all of the recurring patterns in the Enneagram really fascinating. So. I'm always interested to uncover like new bits of information about it. Mm -hmm. Can you say what it was like realizing you were one and not a four? Um, I think I obviously many one descriptions are just like shitty and don't no one no one identifies like that like no one no one thinks that they're that kind of person like a really stuffy kind of like a stuffy yeah. uptight kind of person which I kind of am <laughs> no one's gonna read that and be like oh that's me um uh -huh. and what helped me was understanding like triads and understanding that one is a like super ego competency frustration, gut type, and the intersection yeah. of those points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we're going to get into that in some detail. I'm really curious to ask about competency and frustration and, and gut in particular. But when we talked yesterday, you had this really beautiful analogy or like felt sense experience of your oneness around this image of a tuning fork. Can you just share what that is and what, what the experience of it is? Uh, the experience in my body is, uh, it's almost like I am one line, which is, mm -hmm. I, I imagine it as some kind of tuning fork or some kind of metal um, rod or something that can detect resonance. And the rest of my body feels like just like useless flesh or something. And... When I experience something that I am I comfortable with or that isn't right, there is this felt sense of something being dissonant and not in tune. Um, if you have ever like listened to like a string instrument or something tuning and trying to match that pitch just so, uh, it's just not quite there. Um, I think like many people who can resonate with that feeling, even if they're not ones, they know that feeling of like, oh, it's just not, it's not how it's supposed to be. It's not quite there. And mm -hmm. that's similar to a feeling that I will get for just about anything that is not how it's supposed to be, according to whatever frequency my body is resonating at. Yeah. This is such an evocative image. And I, even in your face as you were describing it, like that 
cringe where it's not quite it's it's not quite on the frequency is i mean that's that is the body responding to something right it's like literally a body like uh like it's not quite there kind of uh tens tensing against something that sounds or feels wrong internally um do you have any other words or language that you have for yourself about your experience as a body type or that that particular experience as a body type um there's i guess there's one more like body experience that i've thought about before which is uh there's that dissonant off feeling and if that isn't fixed there is this like hot cold kind of electric energy that starts in this it's almost it almost looks like a one like numeral I guess is how I feel in my body mm -hmm. and it kind of resonates this electric rage through the rest of my body and whenever I experience anger it it starts there and it's like a reaction to that I think um those are those are the two like the two body feelings that I've thought about the most, I think. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, one of the reasons I ask up front about all this body stuff is that the I the notion of being a body type, or first of all, I believe that we live in a body blind culture for the most part. It's like when people say the intelligence of the body, it's like most people just scratch their heads and say, What are you what are you even talking about? What does that even mean? And these felt senses that you're describing often get languaged in the form of metaphor or image or something like that. But it's really what it's pointing to is this subtle or sometimes not so subtle since sensory experience. Um, and yeah, so hot, cold, the feeling of being out of in or out of resonance. These are things that people can tune into in, the, in their own selves, whether or not they're one. So I just wanted to make that point kind of pedagogically. I also think that um, like one yeah. as a gut type is the most uh, misunderstood or neglected part of many descriptions or understandings of one. I think one. I agree, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It becomes like this moral, headish kind of uh, explanation of what people are witnessing, and mm -hmm. everything becomes like what they think or what they want and it's completely neglects the body experience of what a gut type is yeah so one building off that point one thing to say is that i agree a lot of descriptions i've read about ones focus on the adherence to principle and i think that's that is a very fair statement but its origin points is not in the mind it's in the body and so principle it's almost like a thing discovered through the stomach or something like that um you agree with that phrasing yeah and it's often very like irrational and not doesn't make sense and i think many people mischaracterize one as being you know really logical and having good arguments for what they think. And I just don't think that's generally true. I think one is going to have a 
gut feeling about it and then that's just right and they might they might seek I think at least for me it might be because I'm heart second but I will feel something first that it's you know in tune or not in tune then I will use like the heart center and the emotional justification to kind of amp up that feeling or justify that feeling mm-hmm. and last will be finding some verbal explanation through the head center that's the lowest priority um and i think that is yeah not really mentioned in most descriptions yeah you're also pointing to this is kind of a deep cut any nerd stuff but in in the wisdom of the enneagram there's this beautiful i'm sorry not the wisdom in the in the understanding the enneagram by don reese and russ hudson there's this really great chapter towards the back where they talk about the arrangement of the centers in each of the types and one is a body type that's bordering the heart center and so it's body first supported and juiced up by the emotional sensor the heart sensor and then the heart the, the the mental center is in a sense what is most out of sight um which is a strange description given the way that uh, ones are often characterized as this kind of as these rational uh, you might even say that ones are rationalizing um which is probably the better term. Um, cool. I have a couple other questions. So I want to just get a, like ask you some questions to kind of pull out some examples from your life of oneness to get, get really tangible. And yeah. So why don't we start with, um, do you have any pet peeves? Yes. I have a lot of them. Huh? Um, I have so many that, uh, where to start? I have currently, I can just, I can just spout off the current ones. Um, my current biggest pet peeve is general disorganization and incompetence that, that makes me not able to do my job well. So if other people want to be incompetent and ruin their own lives, that's fine, but if it inconveniences me and they are not receptive to uh, noticing that, it can be pretty irritating. Mm-hmm. Um, I have many, many pet peeves around, I don't know if they're pet peeves or just like really strong preferences around like textures and smells and temperature and things like that. Um, so I'm, I can be super irritable in the summer when it's hot or super grumpy when it's cold, or if the humidity Mm -hmm. isn't quite right, I'll get upset about things like that. Um, Yeah. Some some good self-pres oriented stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also have quite a few pet peeves about like, I think there's, I I have a hard time drawing the line between like pet peeves and then things that seem really unethical and bad to me, but Mm -hmm. I like animals and pets are really important to me and treating them Mm -hmm. well is really important to me. So seeing people not care for their pets properly um, is really angering to me. 
even if it's in kind of a just thoughtless kind of way, not like intentionally malicious, mm-hmm. uh, it's still really upsetting to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I almost like don't even <laughs> have the bandwidth to expose myself to that a lot of the time because I'm going to get upset. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, I have in the past, oh, I'll volunteer for you know a shelter or something so I can hang out with animals seems fine but I get I get too upset and annoyed at what I perceive as kind of negligence or incompetence in how the animals are cared for so I end up having to remove myself from that situation if I don't want to go insane so there's a lot of instances like that yeah yeah um when you get let's let's talk about frustration and and anger and i'm curious so there you are in that situation uh kind of getting worked up like how does it work in you like what do you what specifically are you noticing that starts the inner engine and then yeah i'm like almost the narrative of it like you show up at the to volunteer you're like you're like i've decided i'm going to do this thing today i'm going to volunteer that'll be nice um and i mean even the decision to volunteer has a, has a one-ish flavor and then there you are at this thing so then what happens yeah i mean like this even happens if i try to do something fun like like go to a bar or something mm-hmm. i like I was saying before, I think it starts with this body feeling that I don't have words for yet, and I don't even have an emotional name for yet. But mm-hmm. it's just this that irritated, like, n- no, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. Um, that irritation will trigger either probably like irritation or being upset or being annoyed, depending on what it is. Uh, by then I'll probably have done something about it. I'll have stepped in or kind of taken that situation onto my shoulders, even if I don't realize it. And eventually I will form some narrative about it. Um, These people are incompetent. These people are bad. This shouldn't be happening. What can I do? Uh, Should I do blah, 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 blah? Um, and maybe making sense of things that way. Um, mm-hmm. But that's definitely more of an afterthought. In the moment, it's just, it's not right, and I'm doing something about it, and I'm upset. And later, I try to process, like, what exactly I was doing. Yeah. How quickly do you jump to doing something about it? Pretty fast. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like, I have gotten myself into trouble for kind of just acting when I feel it's justified. There's times that I, you know, like one is, one does hold itself back, but it's pretty, I don't have to think about it. Like if I feel that anger, it's almost like the anger's existence justifies itself, which means I have to do something about it. Um, so I'm, I do something usually very calmly and very coldly, 
and I don't overreact, but mm-hmm. I'm doing something because that's my response. Like, I don't know if it's competency or what it is, but it's, I've noticed it and therefore I feel obligated to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happened? What would happen if you didn't do something? Um, I think I would just get more and more upset until I would have to do something or, or leave or something. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is the doing something is a, is a kind of release valve for yeah. the building frustration. Yeah. And and partly where this is going, I think, is we talked in our previous conversation about this beautiful word grief with respect to one. And this is sort of leading, but I'm curious if this is right on target. It's there's a sense of if if you didn't do something, then it would put you back in contact with some unspeakable grief that would just be unbearable. And so doing something as a way of kind of protecting against that. Does that feel right to you? Yeah. I think um, there's a sense of uh, if I do something, it, it gives a sense of control and of like possibility of change or impermanence of that situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think what is very scary to me is um, eternal like grief or eternal um, dissonance or eternal imperfection, like the concept that it cannot change and my efforts are not going to do anything. So acting, even if it's just like, I I think about that metaphor of like the person standing in the sinking boat and scooping buckets of water out of it, even though everyone else Mm -hmm. is already on the shore, but it's the act of scooping the water that makes it feel like it's, worth something and ignoring the inevitability of sinking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because the inevitability of sinking can actually, let me say it this way. What is the subject of your grief? Like if you can get in touch with it, are you willing to even get in touch with it now to speak about it? Um, it's, it's feeling like, there's a sense of like, I am really a mismatch for this world and whatever I was supposed to exist in, it's not this. And mm-hmm. this, just this overwhelming sense of it's not how it's supposed to be. Um, and a lot of times, well, I think maybe like 1% of the time I can access this little moment, like a high of that's how it's supposed to be right there. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And grief immediately follows because it's so temporary. Um, Mm -hmm. But because I had found it one time, uh, it's impossible for me to not go after it again. So the rest of my time is spent at least for me through my dominant instinct, um, trying to create an environment to allow that perfect sacred feeling 
to happen again. Mm-hmm. So anytime that that's not happening, there's sadness. Um, knowing knowing what it could be and accessing tiny moments of that, but most of the time being denied that, um, mm. I think is what causes a lot of sadness. Yeah. Um, do you have an example of a moment of perfection? Um, it could be, for me, it's like, there's like little creative or artistic things that can cause that feeling, like hearing this perfect moment in a song or uh, like, see, <laughs> this is so silly, but like seeing my cat's paw, like with sun on it or something like that. It's just uh-huh. feels so pure to me. Um, and it's really, it's not usually like a big drawn out thing. It's like little teeny tiny details. Um, and when I'm in a better state of mind, I can find those a little more easily. Um, when I'm maybe in a more negative side of one, it's feels like it's not there. I can't find it. Um, which mm-hmm. makes me more and more and more frantic and fixated on trying to find it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's really, it's really like, for me at least it's not like grand moments of like universal perfection it's just tiny little things that they just snap to the right tune um and it's very satisfying yeah i would love to explore your self-preservation dominance and how that merges with oneness and i guess what i'm curious about is how your oneness shows up in the yeah, just in this in the realm of self-preservation. Like, can you give can can you be concrete? Like, is is your house arranged in a particular way for certain things, or like when you eat stuff, is it like a very particular kind of food, or just or take me even out of the stereotype of self? Or like, how, how do you how do you experience your oneness with self-pres? I mean, it it is a stereotype. I my house is very clean and organized. Uh-huh. I want it to be. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a particular focus on like creating an environment to be in Mm -hmm. uh, which most of the time is like my house Um, and I want it to have this perfect element of creativity and coziness and whatever Uh, aside from Mm -hmm. that I a lot of it is about how I'm spending my energy and my time especially as I think triple competency plays a role in that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, am I, am I maximizing every second to feed the machine in order to be, to kind of uh, craft this lifestyle so that I can create those little moments of godhood that I mentioned before. Um, <laughs> So that can concern like sleep and health um, and my job and all those sorts of things too. Um, Because I am social last, the concept of including social in that limited time span feels like a threat on my 
self-pres. Um, like it's going to open me up and suck me away from what feels really, really important, which is that daily kind of self-management. Um, so yeah, I mean, especially right now, my, my life is really, really small. Uh, it always has been very contained and by small, you mean, um, your social life is small or your, what social life and just how I spend my time and because of COVID, I guess as well. Um, I have become even more like introverted than I used to be. So my mm-hmm. house and my cats and my health and my like daily life and my writing and stuff, that's like 90% of my energy goes towards things like that. Yeah. Um, this is amazing to me. I mean, partly in contrast to just you and me, me as a social dominant three, my experience as a social type is, is that the, the kind of hungry ghost, like I don't have enough of, of social intimacy or social contact. Like that's where I get fussy is, is feeling lonely or if if the interaction doesn't go well or something like that. And I'm curious about fussiness instinctually in the self-pres range and with the one lens yeah i'm I'm fussy about everything uh i mean like social doesn't feel important at all Mm -hmm. uh so it's like what what else what could be more important than making my house clean (laughs) It's it's hard to explain like why something is important when that's my my reality. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is like what I want to do, uh, especially with my writing, mm-hmm. uh, and what I want to curate for my my cats to have the best life possible. Since they're like my they're like the only thing I have to be responsible for other than myself. Mm. Um, Curating that environment to be as good as it can be feels very important. Um, I can't just, I can't just sit in a, in a house with dust on a shelf and write a book. I can't sit in a bright room with ugly curtains and write a book. Uh, I, I just can't do it. So <laughs> it feels mm-hmm. like I can't unlock my muse until everything is really specifically settled. The pets thing is really interesting too, from the point of view of, I love this word godhood that you're putting here. It's kind of like, man, you can really control the environment of your pets. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terribly stressful to be uh responsible for things but yeah yeah um the burden of responsibility is an interesting phrase probably for ones and i'm curious about like even your reaction there it's terrible what do you mean i mean it's it's wonderful and 
clearly it's wonderful because I, I will never not have pets. Um, but it's <laughs> part, part of it is, um, last year I was going through a bout of OCD and I think that's, I think any type can struggle with OCD and have similar feelings about that burden of responsibility. Um, but the way mm -hmm. my type reacted to that, uh, it was focused on my cats and their well-being. And it was almost like a microcosm or like really concentrated, ridiculous version of what I already deal with taking care of them. Um, it's, it's feeling like you're the only one that knows how it's supposed to be. You're the only one that cares enough to do it. You're the only one who can do it. Uh, therefore, you have to do it. And the standard for how it's supposed to be, it doesn't matter what other external uh, people you know, or sources say. It, it doesn't matter. It only matters if I feel it's good enough or how it's supposed to be. And mm -hmm. those standards get more and more specific like <laughs> that tuning gets more and more narrow and it, it it sometimes gets to the point where i am not like actively enjoying my pets or any of my you know responsibilities that i normally love because the the pressure is so high it's the same with um writing the pressure mm -hmm. of meeting my own standards is so ridiculous uh but there's no other like option it feels like sometimes yeah yeah so man what helps with that um well the ocd i got treatment for and i can mm -hmm. i definitely saw like improvement with that um mm -hmm. like i said that's that's separate from the type but Sure. Still, uh, I there's a part of me that I don't I don't want to help that I don't want to lessen that. Um, that would feel inauthentic, um, or it just feels impossible. Why would Why would I want to, you know, take worse care of my pets or write bad things? It, it doesn't make sense to me. So I have a lot of resistance against lowering standards or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people assume that one is, they just want to be told they're doing a good job and be reassured. And it's, it's just, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, of course, people will tell me, you're a great pet owner or your writing is fine or whatever. It doesn't matter. It, that that doesn't matter. I, I don't care if I tell myself I'm doing a good job or if other people, I don't care about doing a good job. I care about not being physically agonized by what I'm witnessing. And in that way, <laughs> yeah, it, it's not really about morality or feeling like I'm good or bad. It's just like, I can't stand it. I have to get out of this 
this disgust feeling of everything that's wrong. That was really evocative. And I wonder too, how much being social blinds calcifies this, it doesn't matter what people say kind of thing. Like I, I just, this is more of a theoretical thing because we don't have a social one in front of us to ask, but I wonder if social dominant one would be more open to receiving the reassurance of someone else. Um, whereas for you as self-pres sexual, it's like, I mean, what other people say already doesn't matter and then add one on top of that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. I've, I'd be interested in that too, but hmm. I think uh, like, because I don't think anyone is looking for anyone, I mean, is looking for reassurance, like that's going to help. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think it's going to make a big impact regardless of the stacking, but um, maybe, maybe that's they would feel true. supported yeah. or something. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I like that distinction. I agree. What's your relationship with fun? Fun? Yeah, fun. Fun and pleasure. What's, what's that? <laughs> um what's my relationship with fun i guess it depends on how you define fun uh there's things that i enjoy doing um i enjoy like playing video games or whatever, playing with cats. Um, I don't enjoy fun for very long because after a while, it's not fun. It's, it's, it's like, it's a feeling of, okay, I need to be doing something. This is, this isn't, this isn't like what I'm looking for in life. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, even something that's fun, uh, for most people is plagued with like being irritated at things and like for example uh, recently I went out to like this pub crawl which is so I don't even I don't even know why I did that but anyway it's so not, it's so not me. Yeah. Like I, I uh, can't even I can't even say those words because it's so. Anyway, I was trying to like make friends. I don't know, but I, I was like so irritated with everything, like people having fun, and all I could see was like, oh that that girl is getting harassed by some guy, and no one is doing anything. So I go over and I have to take care of her and buy her water and get her home, things like that. Like there's always something upsetting. And a lot of times what, what I think is perceived as fun, as fun to me just looks like being blind to like important things that are happening and things that are clearly wrong or just gross or just boring so I think I have fun in my own very specific 
way with my own very specific hobbies. And mm-hmm. outside of that, it is hard. I'm wondering, is there any place in your life, including in some of the things that you just mentioned, that is a refuge from this, what seems to be oppressive responsibility, obligation? Yeah, I think the only refuge is my home when it is organized well and mm-hmm. to my liking, then I feel like I can relax. Yeah. Um, I usually around people, it's just tiring. Uh, and sometimes if I like go in nature, like go to the beach or something, I, I don't have super ego about whether the waves are the right size or something. But, mm-hmm. uh, it's not around people and it's not around, it's usually not around something that I like doing, which is kind of sad. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And okay. Let's talk about writing for a second. And I'm super curious about this as a, from the point of view of being a triple competency type and leading with the superhero type. So first of all, what do you write about and why is writing so important to you? And then what's the process like for you? I write, I have written like since I was a kid and I have written short stories and I'm working on a couple of novels as well. Um, Mm -hmm. The genre is just all over the place. I don't know. I'm going to wait till I finish the book and then make some social dom person pick what the genre is because I don't know. But uh, (laughs) I, I just like interesting things that are not quite in line with any particular genre like I like taking a genre and kind of twisting it and making it different um so what did you say what do I write about and what was the second question it was something like yeah what do you write about why why is writing important to you and and the the process yeah um it's I think just creating a story and playing with words is just very satisfying to me and gives me a kind of thrill that other activities don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm good at it, which is, I've been like told I've been good at it for a long time. And part of that is the three fix, I think, is mm-hmm. attaching to this thing that I'm good at. Uh, but like the worst of times it is just attaching to it because I am good at it and I have to do it but the best of times it's I genuinely enjoy it and it gives me it just is satisfying and I can kind of create little moments that are that make me satisfied (laughs) I don't know it's, yeah. it's like a little mini playground to uh, satisfy that tuning fork. Um, yeah, you're you're flirting dangerously close with having <laughs> fun here. <laughs> it sounds like. Well, then the next question. Uh, <laughs> I I had fun with writing until I was about 
16. Uh Um, And since then, it's been off and on fun and anguish. Uh, I, as you could imagine, I'm very much a perfectionist in writing. And that's something I don't still somehow I don't see that as a flaw because I don't want to, I don't want to not care about that. Uh, so there's an element of knowing that I can achieve a certain standard because I've done it before and then never being satisfied with anything below that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so a lot of times I am just procrastinating doing it because uh, sitting down to do it is very taxing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I procrastinate is trying to perfect my writing environment in the hopes that I can coax out whatever right. muse is going to let me achieve what I want to achieve. There you go. Yeah. I'm hearing some of the nine link stuff there too. I mean, not just to be stereotypical procrastinating equals nine, but it's like the way you distract yourself from your highest priority by kind of piddling about and rearranging your shells or something like that or cleaning yeah. dust one more time. Yeah. Um, do you have strong political views? Um, yes, but they're not very specific. Um, Interesting. Which is, I think, social blind one okay Uh, i i have a lot of like opinions or feelings about things but they're not very specific like i don't ascribe to any particular party or kind of i i don't know enough and i don't care to know enough to figure out exact exactly where i stand on certain things um Uh so i just sort of take a situation as it comes and it will resonate how it resonates and I'll decide how I feel after that. Well, that's an interesting, that's a really cool point distinguishing one from social from in the sense that it's like, if a situation is presented to you or you see something, then an opinion arises or it's, you can take a stand on something kind of, well, to use your word, actually contrary to what you said, it's like that there is specificity in that. But in terms of, creating a web of interconnected theories and contextualizing all those theories and what's going on socially in the world, all that stuff. And like being able to present the grand unified theory of your political philosophy, that's not really interesting to you or it's not, it's not a thing that you've spent energy on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you feeling right this moment? Um, fine. I feel a little tired because it's late. Yeah. Yeah. I ask actually just because I'm curious. Um, and also one thing that I find really interesting about you in terms of your presentation is how still you are in your body and how like there's almost for me as a social type I'm watching and hearing you say things that have a lot of emotional charge, like 
the frustration experience at the bar or um, you know, having strong opinions about certain things or being oppressed by some kind of inner anger mechanism or super ego or something. But if I were watching this video with the sound off, it would, it would almost be like uh, sort of statuesque or, um, or something it would like, I wouldn't register the emotional charge. Yeah. How do you experience that internally? Like your, your level of emotional activation versus your level of somatic activation? Um, I, I mean, I feel, I was surprised when I was typed 135 because that's like the robot. And I feel mm -hmm. like a very emotional person. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't know like how kind of robotic I can come across. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know like other ways of physicalizing emotion because this is, this is how I do it. Um, I experience, to me, I experience emotions deeply, but uh, I don't know how to compare to you know, a different type or something. Sure. Yeah. This is possibly also the social blind thing. First of all, not um, being or having, not really having it in your consciousness, how you're coming across. Um, and also um, not, not in any conscious way con controlling it um, or transmitting some kind of social vibe or energy that would be consistent with your inner state. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to ask a couple other questions about your writing. Um, does does your writing or what you're writing have any kind of mission associated with it or or something like that? Um, my mission is to make something that I feel is like up to my standards and matches the vision that I have for it. Um, right. I have nothing beyond that. Like, I, I would like to publish it eventually just so it can be done, but I don't care if I'm the only person that ever reads it. Uh, I just want mm -hmm. it to be how I want it to be and how I feel like yeah. it should be. This is another just fascinating, almost mind-blowing thing for me, like just taking in your um, social blind oneness, like the, the idea that you could write a book and spend all this time and an incredible amount of energy getting it to a certain standard and then be okay with it only being read by you. <laughs> um, and I mean, first of all, that itself is amazing. And then paragraph two is the stereotype of ones needing to reform laws and politics and all this kind of stuff really falls apart when you get to social blind territory because this um, drive for um, achieving some perfection and uh, hitting hitting the mark of your standard is very self-contained to a creative pursuit that is kind of just for you or just for the people who understand it or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to reform laws 
and mm-hmm. I I can look at even like the most social structure imaginable I still would want to fix it um but I don't feel maybe it's because I'm not like in that position but I don't feel like that's my obligation or calling or something Mm -hmm. um I try to make anything better that I come in contact with personally so Mm -hmm. like in the workplace um at my last teaching job for a while I was the head teacher and I really, really tried to, like, fix some incredibly ridiculous systems that they had in place, and I tried to make everything more streamlined for people. Um, But it wasn't really because I wanted to help the people. (laughs) I just, I couldn't stand how it was organized, and I wanted it to be different. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah. I think if I were in the situation of, you know, some sort of political uprising or if I found myself in that context, I think I probably would take on some sort of reforming role, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like my, the most important thing to me or that I'm, that I must do it. It just seems like, well, if I'm there, of course I'm going to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so different topic. I would love to hear what your, any language you have or your relationship to the essential quality of one, which, um, I love, uh, John's word in his book, just integrity. And we talked, we, we pointed at it with the tuning fork and these moments of pureness or perfection where you see your cat's paw in the sun, these kinds of things. Um, they seem like these almost, uh, particularly the cat paw in the sun is like, that is just such an image for me of like, yes, I get it. That is, there is some purity and perfection in that. And it also has self-pres kind of angle on it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, how, how would you frame up, um, the essence of one or the essential quality. Mm. It's hard to frame it because it's hard to like conceptualize that other people don't have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's just a feeling of something being how it's supposed to be. I don't really know how to say it in a different way. Um, it's, mm-hmm. It definitely has a feeling of uh, it used to be like that somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, like that was the original, it, it almost has like a, like a fall from grace kind of feeling. Um, yeah. I don't, uh-huh. I don't feel like I'm appealing to a new idea of what it should be like in the future, but more like uh-huh. this is how it was always going to be. And uh-huh. from the creation of the universe or something, like every atom 
felt like this is how it's supposed to be. And mm-hmm. I don't know what force ruined it. Uh, but it's almost like I'm <laughs> I'm remembering a different uh, what's it called? Like a parallel universe or something. <laughs> and uh-huh. feeling so out of place and like I can't I can't breathe this air in this universe because it's so fundamentally wrong compared to what I feel what I know is you know how it's supposed to be so the feeling of integrity that I witness in those moments is yeah it's like the personality can just stop doing and stop the effort and you don't realize how much effort you've been putting in and how exhausted and sad you are until that second when you can just stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't remember if it's, I don't know what part of the lingo it is, but um, I also resonate with the word like serenity and yeah. kind of accepting uh accepting that moment how it is and finding uh, beauty or um, perfection in that in that one single moment yeah yeah as a triple competency type what's it like for you to consider being emotionally real um, or reactive in the style of four, six, eight, or um, seeing the bright side or silver lining of something like a positive outlook type. Um, both of those just seem kind of like useless to me. Yeah. Uh, reactive just seems like kind of messy and not really. It feels like it cheapens the emotions to just throw them everywhere. Um, And positive types just feel delusional most of the time. Uh Uh, And in that delusion, I often get upset because I feel like they aren't uh, caring with me about the things that I'm seeing. It's like they're blind to it. Right. Um, And the things that you're seeing are Either it's like just, you know, things that need to be done um, or things that are wrong that actually make me upset. Um, I, yeah, so both of them just feel kind of like childish to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There, There are quite a few things that I think are misunderstood about one that oh this is great yeah let's go there mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of things though um okay and i'm trying to think which which one i would address i kind of already did talk about how uh, one is neglected as a gut type mm-hmm. um, i think The other thing that I would just touch on is 
that I see a lot and it annoys me because it is so not how I experience myself is uh, people saying that one is like one considers anger to be a bad emotion and that's why they shut it down or that one is always experiencing this inner critic telling them they're bad or they shouldn't think like that and that's just not the internal experience that I have at all Um, and I yeah I don't know if that's something you've noticed as well with any descriptions but I think (laughs) anger sure I don't think an emotion can be bad I don't think anything internal can be bad or good it's just signals and what I do about it and how I act upon that is holds more moral weight so I don't experience like a voice in my head criticizing me or making me relive the past or anything like that that just seems maybe more in line with six or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that many people imagine that that's what the inside of one's head must be like. It's just Mm -hmm. yelling at yourself all the time. And I don't know, like being like a really irritating parent or something. Um, And like most of the time, I don't really have, anything going on in my head (laughs) it's just it's just driven by whatever I'm doing and how my body feels about that um Uh and it's really it's really hard to like I would imagine it's really hard for someone who's not one to kind of like understand how that can be your experience when outwardly you're so critical or whatever but yeah i i just think there's a lot of um interestingly bad hypothesizing about how one is feeling about their self that it's just not my experience the statement you're making that it's not really like something arises in me and then i judge it for arising it's like anything that arises in me is neutral. It's just what you do about it. Um, That's a really interesting distinction at the level of like your experiential reality. And it does contradict a lot of what is taught about ones where like a classic one example that's taught is it's like an inner impulse arises that would take me away from alignment with myself or my principle. Like for example, if I care about being a vegan and I see a steak and it looks juicy, there's something in me that cans it, says, no, you're not like it asserts that it asserts an inner boundary against that impulse or that desire. And I think that's true. I think okay, that is true. The, yeah. I think the distinction for me would be, it's not accompanied by, no, you shouldn't eat that. That's a bad thing to do. What's wrong with you? It's just like, doesn't fit next. Doesn't fit next. It's not, It doesn't Uh feel like I have something else hanging over me, telling me what to do. It's just, Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit my body. So it goes to the next, I I do something else. Um, It's very 
It's not yeah. like a little nagging voice. Like I, I wish I could do that, but the little voice won't let me. It doesn't. It, I don't experience like that. It's definitely a. I guess you could say it's a judgment, but it's just. It's like a puzzle piece. It doesn't fit. Next one. Yeah, this is also talking about. I mean, one is a body type. The body is king here. It's like, it's, um, it's a felt sense experience onto the next thing. And so even calling it a judgment, for example, is like a mental languaging around some like deeply felt somatic um, experience. One way that I've heard the one taught a lot is that they're trying to win brownie points from an inner critic, always. It's like there's some inner standard that exists in whether it's a, it's a lot, often characterized as a voice, but um, I, pref I like your tuning fork analogy kind of better. Um, but even so, there's some way that the tuning fork itself is is um, mediating some standard against which any inner impulse or external reality is either lining up with or not lining up with. Does that feel like a fair characterization? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's, I think what most descriptions are attempting to describe is not wrong, but it's how that gets like framed as it's just this little, you know, poor person that's trying so hard, but they have this standard that they're, they never feel good enough. They just want to, and mm -hmm. That makes it seem like there's a separation between the like ego and the standards, but for me, the ego is the standard, and okay. the self, yeah. yeah, like the self that's maybe like the poor little human self isn't even on the radar, which is the problem. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like there are moments, rare moments, where I can see that self that's just like this dumb little human person trying really hard and like caring a lot about things and uh, that's you know kind of sad or pitiful but most of yeah. the time like yeah i i am that standard and that standard is me so there's no conflict about i want to do this but like daddy said no it's it's mm -hmm. like I feel like I should do this, so I want to do this. And yeah. that's what gives like one such an authority is that yeah. there is no conflict or push pull. It's just shutting out any dissociating from any humanity and just only operating as that tuning fork machine. Yeah. And then is there a, okay, this is really quite profound what you're saying. I mean, I guess this is a distinction between the six inner splits and inner negotiation versus the one like total system alignment with the standard that is me. And what I'm interested in is um, if you take a framework like inner family systems, which is like a parts work, do you know what that is? Like a parts work framework? No, the, the gist is basically that we're not as human beings made up of a single unified consciousness. We have parts like um, one part of us wants to go 
uh, you know, wants to get out of bed, another part of us would rather stay. And there's an inner conflict. Kind of sounds like what you're saying is, in a sense, like your actual inner experience is that that's not really what happens for you. It's almost like you don't really have parts. You've got just like the standard and your actions to align with that standard. But um, I would be curious, this is kind of a push too, like the, um, the part of you that dissociates um, or that gets like blocked out of the picture in order for the remainder of you to be in alignment with this thing. I hear you that it's not, there's not an inner negotiation going on, but I, but I would bet you that there's something that is being stuffed or something like that. That's just not being allowed to have a voice. And so that's what stifles or mutes the inner negotiation. Um, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's accurate. You, you agree with that? Okay. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Anything else about oneness or one misconceptions that would be that you want to share? Uh, no, I think I covered all those. What has this, has this been like for you? Um, it's an interesting conversation and like even this conversation has given me new insights to think about. Um, yeah. Well, like what I expected when I did it was just something that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask one other question in this space. Do you experience, this is maybe a social mind oriented question. Do you experience yourself or have some emotional response to being the subject of questioning? about yourself? Uh, I, I prefer it because I don't know how to ask questions. <laughs> so <laughs> I think this is way easier than a conversation. And I think it's maybe SPSX in particular that's like very satisfied to just constantly like churn in on itself and think about yes. itself and come up with new ideas about itself so that's that's pretty comfortable space for me (laughs) (laughs) cool yeah um well thank you thanks for doing this and i appreciate your um your honesty and your willingness to be uh yeah to kind of dig around this inner territory with me yeah thank you